We are now coming into the seventh year after Hijrah. So we know that the Prophet Muhammad spent roughly about 12 years in Makkah. And that the first year in Medina is called the first year after Hijrah, when he performs the Hijrah from Makkah to Medina. Almost seven years have passed and a lot of things have been established. But one thing is amazing is that you'll find that every single year, every single month, the Prophet Muhammad never rests. Neither him, neither his Sahabi. Continuously, and even generally for the Ummah of the Muslims, there's this continuous momentum of just carrying the Dawah. And as the Dawah expands, the work gets harder, it gets busier and so forth. I was having a conversation with a brother about this, generally how Muslims should try to perceive life in the way that it is. If Allah made it very clear that your only purpose in this dunya is for a test, no one should be under the impression that things are going to be easy, that you're going to have a nice and cosy and cruising lifestyle. It will never be like that for the believers. For those who don't want to get paradise, those who don't want to achieve the greatest reward, it will be easy for you. Okay? But for those who strive in the path of Allah, they will never be settled. That's why these, are, these things are supported by the hadith of the Prophet who says, the one who wakes up without thinking of the affairs of the Muslims, he's not a Muslim or he's not one of us. So the true believers will never ever sit comfortably. They will never be content with what's happening around the world, not for even just for the Muslims, but even around just the injustice that happens. He will take the burden upon himself to do what he needs to do. And that's the first realization of a true believer. When you realize that, you take on that test, you take on that burden. And how you then unrelieve that burden, how you unburden yourself, is by following the path of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Very clearly, this is what you do. So when you look at, for example, what's happening around in Palestine, and that issue is escalating very, very quickly. And there's not one scholar, even in today, who has not mentioned that this is definitely one of the signs of what is going to happen, the inevitable, right? The inevitable coming towards the end of times. So for people, it should be almost, uh, you know, Alarm bells going off. But the irony of this whole thing is, is that the Prophet said, when the time comes and you see the Dahud, the Kufr in front of you, some of us will still remain asleep. You understand? Because some of us will not come to believe, is this really the end? Is this the beginning of the end? Are we really come to a point where everything's going to be tested? And the question you're going to ask yourself is, are you going to be on the right side? The next step and the next the choice that you're going to make is going to require serious sacrifice in everything. Things that you're already used to in this dunya, your lifestyle, your jobs, your careers, your family, all of this will all be tested. And you've got to ask yourself the question, where do I go next? So for Mahmoud Salam, there's a clear example that he, the Prophet made it very clear that I am the living example, living proof of what you will face. What I went through, what the Sahabi went through, this is what you have to go through because we set the bar high and that's the bar that we have to follow. That is the benchmark. So for the Prophet it was never an easy sort of cruise for him. Even after taking the greatest goal, taking Khaybar meant the tides had turned for their financial situation. They were very poor. They didn't have anything. But Heber was like literally taking over the United States of America and taking everything that they own. All the money, all the wealth. 
and that money was distributed. That was the promise that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came. And I love this whole thing about Allah saying, if you do these things, if you make the sacrifice, Allah will promise you this, Allah will promise you that. Allah's promise never fails you. And then if you ask yourself the question, why hasn't those promises come? Then you need to look at yourself and say, did you really commit yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentally, physically, and really from your heart? And these are the real points that you have to keep questioning yourself. Your circumstances will never change until you change what is within yourself. So a couple of events that happened straight after, which are interesting stories. After the Battle of Khaybar and after the Prophet Muhammad marrying uh, you know, Hazrat Safiya, there was one Sahabi by the name of Al-Hajjaj bin Ilat. Now Al-Hajjaj was a new Muslim from Makkah. So when they won in Khaybar, he said to the Prophet Muhammad would you allow me, Ya Rasul, to go back to Makkah to tidy up my affairs? Meaning I have money and wealth there, I like to extract it out of there. And so the Prophet gave him ijazat, permission, you go. But he said, Ya Rasul, but there's one thing. And he said, what is it? He goes, I might have to make lies up against you. And the Prophet said, no problem. Now you find there's a general theme. Whenever the Muslims want to gain something for their rights, or for the better of the Muslims, they were permitted to make lies against the Prophet Muhammad right? To basically play the political game. So, Al-Hajjaj makes his way towards Makkah. And as he's coming in, so just outside the perimeter of Makkah, there's scouts. Now, you know already that the Meccans, the Quraysh, and the Muslims have made an agreement in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. They're not going to battle. They're not going to fight. Okay, They're going to allow each other to do what they want and the Muslims are allowed to perform the Umrah the following year. So, having said that, they still want to understand what is going on with Muhammad and his gang. What are they doing? Who are they attacking? And so forth. And they're not allowed to intervene. Because when this treaty was made, this left the doors open for the Prophet to do with the Yehuds. Because the Yehuds were creating huge amounts of fitna. Huge amounts of fitna. And we're not talking about fitna just bothering you and picking on you. We're talking about fitna waging war against you. Waging war to demise you, to kill you, to take your women, take your children, take everything you have, enslave them. They wanted to kill the Muslim, finish them. Allah Ta'ala gave the permission and opened the doorway so the Prophet deal with this particular problem with the Khaybar and the Jews. And the Quraysh could not be involved. So they were listening out to the conversation. They were waiting for, you know, these tradesmen that were coming from, you know, from, from Syria and asking them what's happened. They heard the news that the Prophet was going to attack Khaybar. So Al-Hajjaj comes back towards Makkah. Now everyone knows Al-Hajjaj from Makkah, but they didn't know he became Muslim because a lot of people just went, joined, no one knew what happened. His wife still lives in Makkah. When he arrived close to it, the Quraysh saw him and they come and say, Al-Hajjaj, Al-Hajjaj, you must know something, you're a traveller, you've you come all the way from the north, what have you heard? He said, oh, you talking about Muhammad? He goes, yeah, Muhammad and his merry men, what have they done? What have they achieved? They went to Khaybar. He said, bad news for him. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, the Prophet got beaten. He goes, they killed the Sahabi, all his companions, they've arrested him, the Jews, they don't want to kill him, they want to hand him over to the Meccans so the Meccans can do with their, their own people. They got so excited and they ran into, into Makkah. Now, Al-Hajjaj followed them into Makkah. And so they started to spread the news because they wanted to obviously give a little bit of motivation and good news to, these, to the Quraysh. Now, Al-Hajjaj went to these people and said, look, I've done you a favour. I've given you all the good news, but help me out here, right? 
I've come back to collect all my money. Some merchants and some other people owe me some money. Help me collect my money. Because in Khaybar, everything that the Muslims owned, all their weapons, all their camels, everything, the Jews have it and they're having a big auction. And I want to buy their weapons. So let me get in there first because I'm a tradesman. They said, of course. He said, I've never seen people run so fast to get my goods and my money back. So all the money got collected. Then he went to his wife and he said to his wife, and he didn't even tell his wife, he said to his wife, where's all the money? Muhammad has lost. I need to go there. I need to buy all the goods at a cheap price. So she gave him the money. Then Al-Hajjaj went to one merchant, one guy that owed him some serious amount of money and he's standing there. Now obviously the news is getting around in Makkah that the Prophet has lost, right? He's, he's been beaten in Khaybar. So people are getting excited. Remember in Makkah, who's left? His uncle Al-Abbas. And Al-Abbas was Muslim. So when he heard this, and at the moment he didn't fully announce himself, but they knew that he, that was his nephew. They knew, the Quraysh knew that Al-Abbas is a very powerful man in Quraysh, but they know that he loves his nephew and that he's close to him. So Al-Abbas is upset and he comes along and he sees Al-Hajjaj and he walks into the tent while the man is counting his money and he knocks Al-Hajjaj on the side. And he says, what's this I hear that you come back and you're telling everyone that Muhammad, you know, my nephew has lost the war. And he looks at Al-Abbas and he says, Al-Abbas, can you keep a secret? Will you promise to keep a secret? I will tell you everything, but I need to meet you in secret. Let me take care of my affairs, let me collect my money, and I'll meet you later on in the night. So Al-Abbas went. He collected his money and he met with Al-Abbas. He went there, he sat with them, he said, listen, forget about the news. The Prophet has defeated the Jews. He has taken everything, every single fortress that exists in Khaybar, he has taken all their wealth, he has taken their women, he has taken their children, they have been enslaved, and the leaders who are behind all of the planning and the killing of the Muslims have been destroyed. This made Al-Abbas very happy, but he said, do me a favour, please. Keep this secret to yourself for three days until I leave. I need to leave because if you let it out now, they'll come chasing after me and I want to be gone by the time they find out. Al-Abbas was so happy, he said, you go. So Al-Hajjaj, when he collected his money, left and made his journey uh, back to Medina. So Al-Abbas, on the third day, puts on his best clothes, puts perfume on, and he strolls up towards the Kaaba. All the other leaders, people like Abu Sufyan, Ikramah bil Jahel, all these people who know that he's very close to the Prophet, they're like, what's going on? This must be your counter-depression action, right? You're feeling, you know, you must be feeling depressed and you want to, you know, eat some chocolate, but instead you put your nice clothes on your perfume. What's the problem? I know it's hard to know that your, that your nephew has lost the war and those Muslims have been finished. He goes, to the contrary, actually. He said, the truth of the matter is that my nephew has defeated the Jews. And they have destroyed and taken over their land. They were like shocked, this can't be true. Al-Hajjaj is a Muslim and he only came and told you this so he can take all his money out that you have prevented everyone. You put sanctions on the Muslims and you were stupid enough to believe that he was a non-Muslim and he took everything. And that was it. They became so deflated. This became such a huge impact for them because Khaybar is a very powerful city. Right? It's almost like a country unto its own. And for the Quraysh to hear that the Prophet Muhammad took that small little army and defeated them, 
That was it. They were like, we, what chance have we got against him? This obviously built a very serious kind of like response in their own mind about what they think what was going to happen. But there was another story that I wanted to talk about, about how even when this period of time, you know, the Muslims, they themselves have many, many different issues. So there was many expeditions. The, when the Prophet left Khaybar and he went back, he got attacked by some sub-tribe groups of Jews. He defeated them. Then there were some other Arab tribes who tried to fight the Prophet and he defeated them. So they had gained so much momentum. And then some of the other smaller Jews realized there's no point fighting. Let's pay the jizya tax and let's just join him. So this created a huge momentum for the Prophet that under this Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, under this umbrella, Allah was giving him the victory. He was gaining and gaining more and more strength. One of the other events that occurred was, it was a kind of a sad story, but it shows you uh, the behavior of Muslims, that how the justice of Islam will even account the Muslims. Islam is not favorable to Muslims, it's not favorable to Jews or Christians, whatever. It's favorable to what Allah's haq is, the, the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of the incidents that happened was, there was a story, in a, very, in a nutshell, without going into too much detail, Usama bin Zayd, who is the son of Zayd bin Haritha. So Zayd bin Haritha is a Sahabi who was classified as the adopted son of the Prophet. So his son Usama grew up 16, 17 years old. So the Prophet sent him on an expedition to fight some tribes who were preparing to attack the Muslims. When he went there and he started to fight them, there was one man as he was fighting him and he knocked the sword out of his hand and about to kill him, the man took the shahada. So Osama bin Zayd stepped away. Then the man tried to attack him again. So Osama bin Zayd started to fight him and he fell and he took the shahada again. On the third time, he tried that again. This time, Osama bin Zayd, he says, this man is a liar and he killed him. The news got back to the Prophet Muhammad and the Prophet was so angry that he said to Osama bin Zayd, he goes, did you open his heart to see what was in there, to know that he was lying? Osama bin Zayd said on that day, he goes, I realized I wished that was the day that I became a new Muslim. Because when you become a new Muslim, Allah forgives all your past sins. He goes, I could not believe that the Prophet was angry with me, that I had done such a wrong thing. So here they're learning about now the interaction with these non-Muslims. Now one of the stories that I wanted to talk about was this man by the name of Muhalla bin Juthama. Now Muhalla bin Juthama was one of the Muslims with the Prophet and they were sent on an expedition. Now on this expedition they were sent with Abu Qatada to go and intercede and interject with a, a tribe called Idam. So they went. So there was about five or six of them and Muhalla was with them. So when they got to a certain point, there was a man that was riding a camel who was carrying some good and he had a vessel of yogurt. Now when they saw this man, they assumed that he was from the enemy tribe until this man put his hand up and gave them salam. So when you give salam, you assume now that he's a Muslim. The doubts are removed and he is a Muslim. Abu Qatada described that once this man went past us, this man Muhallim jumped up as the camel went past jumped from behind, grabbed him from the neck, threw him off and stabbed him multiple times and killed him. When they returned back to Medina and they told the Prophet Muhammad about this, the Prophet Muhammad before he could even respond, the leaders of that tribe came to see the Prophet Muhammad They wanted vengeance for Muhallim for what he had done. So he wasn't in Medina, this was a journey coming back to Medina from Khaybar. So 
This man said to the Prophet ﷺ, we want him, we want Muhallim. The Prophet ﷺ said, accept 50 camels from me. Yeah, the, so the blood weight was, if for a death, it's 100 camels. He takes 50 camels from me now, and when we get back to Medina, I'll give you 50 more. He said, no. I want your women to feel the same pain that our women have felt over the man that Muhallim killed. His name was Amr, he killed. The Prophet ﷺ once again, he said, please take 50 camels off me, and I'll give you another 50. So another man intervened from another tribe. And he saw this you know, discussion taking place. The other man walked away and this intermediate said to the Prophet Muhammad that this is clearly something bad that's happened. And sometimes, you know, in situations like this, we should maybe consider we postpone or we start tomorrow with the rules of Islam. So maybe we should go back to the rules of Jahliya and basically allow him to kill him. And the Prophet became very angry at this statement because what he was saying was even though the law of Islam is now established, they're saying suspend that law and let's go back, resolve it and then we'll go back to Islam. So the Prophet said no, 50 camels and 50 when we get there. So they went back and the other tribe and they gathered up. In the meantime, the family of Muhallim brought out Muhallim from the tent and they said, go to the Prophet Muhammad and please now ask forgiveness because this is a very serious crime that you have committed against Allah and the Prophet Muhammad Muhallim comes out and he's dressed up in robes of execution, thinking that he was going to be executed by the other tribe. And he says to the Prophet Muhammad or the family come up and they said, Ya Rasul, please forgive Muhallim. The Prophet lifted up his hand in dua and he said, Ya Allah, do not forgive this man. Do not forgive this man and do not forgive this man. This was the dua that the Prophet made against him. And Muhallim immediately broke down. Obviously, when the Prophet makes a dua against you, there's an issue. Now, if you look at Surah Al-Furqan, if you read that in a lot of detail, there's a verse of the Quran that says, on that day, people will be in fear. The adrenaline rush and the fact that you are aware of now what you are facing, they will bite onto their fingers, into their knuckles without even knowing. The pain they won't even feel because they know that now they're going to face Allah and they're going to face the persecution. And it's in this verse of the Quran that it talks about that person and that refers to you and me as in the Muslim. They will bite into their fingernails and they'll say, Oh, had I only followed the path of the Prophet, but instead I was influenced by this friend of mine who took me away from the path. When I was supposed to go to the mosque, he said, Loud the mosque and let's go clubbing. Instead of going to help and do some charity, because leave that, let's go for a smoke. Everything I did this friend, he was the one. And then Allah will say, he wasn't the only one, there were three of you. All of you were part of the crime. And the third one was shaitan. And shaitan was the one who influenced him, who influenced you. And then Allah will refer back to the Prophet and say, did you not teach him about the Quran? Ya Allah, I taught them everything about the Quran. I left nothing behind. I have left nothing behind. I am free of them. So what Surah Fraqan talks about on that day, the Prophet will have two roles. One, which is what we all wish for, that we will get his intercession on the Day of Judgment, that he will intercede for us 
when we are counted, when we are literally shaking in our boots and we're in fear of the fact that we're going to be thrown in hell, that what will happen, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow the Prophet Muhammad to intervene and say, I intervene for this person. And the second position that he will hold is a position of a prosecutor. That he will say, I taught these people, I taught them everything, I left everything with them, and yet they denied me. So here you can see that the Prophet will have two positions. Later on, when the other family were gathering together, the, the hadith goes on to say, this part of the hadith is probably weak, but the man that approached them and said, listen, the Prophet Muhammad he said to you 50 camels and 50 when you get to Medina. Why don't you accept the deal that he's giving you? Do you want to make him angry so that Allah can become angry because he's angry? Why do you want the curse of Allah on you? Then the man on the indirect threat, he goes, if you don't take this deal, because we don't want to see the man upset. If you don't take this deal, he goes, I swear, he goes, I'll have a whole group of men who will deny the fact that he killed him. Right? Which was the wrong statement to make. But the point is that they were showing their affection and love. So eventually they came and they took their blood with money. They say later on, seven days afterwards, that Muhallim didn't survive, he died. So the Prophet had ordered the Sahabi that you bury him. They said that we had buried him and we came back the next day and his body was outside of the grave. So they buried him a second time. And they came back the second day, his body was thrown outside of the grave. Then they did it the third time and it's thrown out. On the fourth occasion, they just threw rocks over his body. And they said to the Prophet this is what happened. He said, there was people in this dunya have done worse crimes than him. But Allah wanted to show you how he won't even accept them and ejected his body. So this is the seriousness of, we don't understand the gravity of the sins that we do. And the problem is, is because the world we live in today, we have absolutely normalized that which is haram. And that's one thing. I can understand that to a certain degree, right? Because we live in a jahil environment and when you're inundated with so many people who don't follow Islam, it becomes normalized. But what is harder to accept is when the haram Right? So in the halal, when the fard almost becomes now haram in our eyes. That when you know it's time to pray, and you know that when Allah says something is fard, Allah is saying, if you do this, this is an amr, this is a command. If you do it, you will get rewarded. But if you knowingly, consciously reject it, then you and me have a problem. Some Sahabi say, and the Prophet Muhammad say that you almost go outside the fold of Islam because you're rejecting the haq of Allah, you're rejecting his right over you. When Muslims then turn around and they take that which is fard and they make that almost haram, that I don't want to do this. And you can see in sometimes our children's behavior, even some adults, when it comes to salah, they don't want to do it. They roll their eyes at it. When we think about Ramadan coming, right, instead of people getting really excited, ecstatic, that if I can make Ramadan and I can get Allah to forgive all my sins, I can potentially get to heaven without any accountability. We start rolling our eyes. Oh, here we go. Got to do that. I'll be starving. Can't go out. Can't do this. I have to suspend all of my haram activities. Suspend them. This is the attitude and this is the behavior. So here you begin to see that even Muslims that over the account of the dunya, we are so attached to the dunya that we want our revenge, we want our wealth, we want our gain, right? Over the temporary, yeah? over the fact that 
we will give up what is in, in, in the Akhirah. That's because we're not convinced enough of the Akhirah. We don't have enough of that. right? And it doesn't just get produced in your mind. It doesn't come overnight. It's not a dream that will settle in your heart. You have to read, you have to study, you have to build it up. That's the whole challenge. That's the whole challenge. But there's a lot of people who take it so easy. They just, I'll be alright, I'll be alright. As time goes along, I'll be better, I'll be better. Allah would not change your circumstances unless you're willing to change the circumstances of yourself first. Now, we're coming into, the, after the Prophet comes back to Medina, many months have passed. And so we're coming into the seventh year after Hijrah. And it's coming to the month that the Quraysh had prevented the Muslims from entering into Makkah from the previous year. So the Prophet Muhammad was excited about this particular month because this is the month where he is now allowed to enter into Makkah. And so they call this Umrah Al-Qadha, you know, as in your Qadha pray, yeah? Because they were meant to go last year and it got delayed. So they're making up for the last year one, yeah? So the concept of Umrah Al-Qadha. So the Prophet told the Sahabi, we are going now to perform our Umrah. And again, they're ecstatic. 2,000 of them prepared. 2,000. So the Muslims prepared, got into the Ihram. Now the Prophet was very cautious as well, and he took weapons. As he travelled up towards Makkah, he got close towards Makkah, just of the outer regions. And news came out from the Meccans who were the, on the outside of the Quraysh, who were just monitoring the places, that this man Muhammad and his men have come with weapons. So when the Quraysh found out, the Quraysh was shaking their boots because, hey, he just beat he just beat one of the biggest forces, yeah, the Jews in Khaybar. So they were petrified that if he's come with arms, what's he going to do to us? So they sent this man by the name of Mikras bin Qais to go and talk to the Prophet Muhammad So Mikras came out and he said to the Prophet, and he said this in a very nice way as well, he said, Oh Muhammad, you are not known to be the type of person who goes against any agreement. Why have you bought your weapons? He said, I am not bringing the weapons into Makkah against any of the Quraysh. None of this is coming, so do not fear. And Mikraz responded back and said, As always, we expected you to be with honesty and integrity. Thank you very much. And they went back. So the Prophet ordered out of that 2,200 of the men, to stay with the weapons to keep out. Because there's a fine line between sincerity and stupidity. Always watch your back and always make the right move, right? Walking into an EDL march to give dawah is not necessarily the smartest thing to do. The Prophet always plans ahead to make sure that first and a priority that his men are protected, his people are protected, the women, the children, the elders, right? And even the Sahabi were fighting that they are protected at the best possibility. So every Muslim has a responsibility, you as a father, you as a mother, we all have responsibilities. When you're a manager, you have responsibilities and you've got to take care of everyone underneath you, right? So the Prophet leaves these men there and then they enter into the Makkah. Now at this time, the news is getting around that all these 2,000 men are walking in. Some of the leaders of the Quraysh, they did not want to see this. So some of them, they went outside of Makkah. Okay? Some of them went to the mountains you know, and to, to watch this spectacle. And, and the same similar thing happens in Fatah Makkah as well. So the Prophet Muhammad, when he enters, all the other women, the children, they wanted to see what was going on. They wanted to see this. And this is a great spectacle. So when the Prophet enters and he's on his camel and he's going in, 
one of the news that got around to all the Quraysh is that the people of Medina suffered from great plague. So these Muslims that are coming, they're weak. They're weak and they're tired and they're exhausted and they have illnesses. And the Prophet ﷺ took that very personally. He never ever wanted Muslims to be looked down upon. He never wanted Muslims to be insulted. So when the Prophet ﷺ started to perform his tawaf, when he got to, as you know, when you do the tawaf and you go to the Yemeni corner and you got to the Black Stone, etc., etc., to one point when they were where they were watching from, when he got to a certain point, he got up onto the camel, sat on the camel, and he made his khutbah there. And he said to the Sahabi, never allow them to see you as weak. And the moment that the Prophet ﷺ, he jogged the three circuits between two corners that they could see them. And this is where it comes from. He said, uncover your shoulder to show strength. Uncover one part of your shoulder. And the part they can all see you run from that one corner to the other. And then you walk around the back. Because they were tired. They were exhausted. They just walked from Medina all the way. And they came off one of the greatest battles. Right? There's not a lot of recovery point for them. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to show them their strength. And the Quraysh, when they looked, and they started saying, you were saying that they were weak. He goes, look at them. He goes, they're running around like ostriches. Look how fast they're like they're gazelles. They're moving around. This made them realize how strong these Muslims are. That whatever happens, they've got this strength within them, this motivation. So the Prophet ﷺ performed this Umrah. And then during that time while he was in Medina and the Umrah had completed, the Prophet ﷺ ordered Hazrat Bilal, he says, get on top of the Kaaba and call the Adhan for Zuhr. Call the Adhan for Zuhr. When the Prophet ﷺ did this, this really upset many of the Quraysh, right? All of these people, people like Ikramah bin Abu Jahl, yeah, the son of Abu Jahl, listened to the conversation, they all sat and they looked, and when they saw this black slave, as they deemed it, degraded him, standing there, calling the Adhan, this is a guy that would follow our rules, our regulations, and we can beat him, we can do everything, but look at him, he's up on the Kaaba and he's calling for Islam. And they said to each other, one of them, Ikramah bin Abu Jah, the son of Abu Jah, he said, God has honoured my father by not having him hear this slave, what he is saying. Safwan bin Umayyah said, praise be to God who took away my father before he could see this. And Khalid bin Usaid agreed and he said, praise be to God who took the life of my father so that he did not witness this day when Bilal climbs on top of the Kaaba and brays like a donkey. These are the insults that they were hurling. And Sahel bin Amr and the men that were with him, they just covered their ears and covered their faces. This is how much detest they had. They could not bear to see this. But how funny how life works out, right? The ones who hated Islam the most all become one of the greatest companions, right? Whilst the Prophet is there, he meets his uncle Al-Abbas. So Al-Abbas says to the Prophet Muhammad while you are in Makkah, why don't you marry my sister-in-law? who is Hazrat Mumayna, right? You marry her, this is Umm Fadl, this is her sister. So Maymuna was a widow, so she lost obviously her husband and Al-Abbas thought this would be a good opportunity. Now the reason why he did this, because again, Maymuna was from the Quraysh tribe and having more links into those families bonds and strengthens the relationship and destroying the barriers you have between the tribes. So this was arranged 
the Prophet Muhammad agreed. Remember, the agreement was that it was three nights that you're three days, three nights you're allowed to be in Makkah, and then you have to leave. So the Prophet was sitting there one, and he was sitting with Saad bin Abada, and they were talking. And some some of the delegations of the Quraysh they came, and they said to the Prophet, they said, "You agreed three days and three nights, you should leave." He said, "Look, I'm getting married to one of yours, and I would like to invite you to the wedding as well." Right? So allow me to have a wedding and a feast, and you're all invited. They said, we will call upon the contract unless you remove yourself from here. So the Prophet ﷺ, he had 2,000 men. He didn't have to move, but he honoured the contract and the agreement. So the Prophet ﷺ told the Sahabi, get ready and we'll leave. And so they did leave. So the marriage was performed and the Prophet ﷺ had left and gone. Now, this was a, a huge milestone for the Muslims to be able to come back and perform that Umrah for the, under the first condition of that treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. Now, when the Prophet Muhammad had performed this Umrah and he was leaving Makkah, one of the most famous stories that occurred was Hazrat Hamza was in Medina, remember, and he died in the Battle of Uhud. He got killed. But Hazrat Hamza had one daughter, one child that was in Makkah. So as they were leaving, this child runs out and sees Muhammad Salam, Hazrat Ali, Jafar bin Abu Talib and Zayb bin Haritha, all being their relatives. So she comes running out and she said, please, uncle, uncle, take me with you, take me with you, take me. So obviously the Prophet Salam heart wept for her. Hazrat Ali immediately says, I'll take her. She's my cousin after all. And Jafar bin Abu Talib was there. He says, no, I'll take her. I'm the brother of Hazrat Ali. But the wife, my wife, is the maternal aunt of this girl. And Zayb bin Haritha then says, no, I will take her. Because, Ya Rasul, you made Hamza my brother in Medina. You know when we did that pact? So they become real brothers. And the Prophet ﷺ was chuffed by the response of these Muslims. And I'll tell you why. Because in those days, the women, and especially children, had no value. This, these were the tribes that when the girls used to get to the age of two or three, they used to take them out to the desert, dig a hole, make a sacrifice to the gods, put the little daughters in the hole and throw stones at them until they died, until they killed them. This is how they used to torture them. There was no value for them. In those days, to take a daughter was an overhead for them. Nobody wanted them. Everyone wants a son because sons show clout. It shows power. Right in those days. But to see now for the first time how Muslims, the same people who once Hazrat Umar, there was at, at this hadith may have been weak, right? But there was a story about Hazrat Umar. They used to say that when he was a Khalif, that they used to see Hazrat Umar sometimes sit there and he used to spend a lot of time contemplating. After the death of the Prophet, people like Abu Bakr Siddi, Hazrat Umar, and so forth, they were never the same because they were so close to the Prophet Muhammad Literally, you know how if people are very close to their wives or their husbands or their fathers and they lose them, half of them almost feel like they dies with them. And this is what the Sahabi were like when the Prophet went. So they would almost dedicate their time thinking about the old days, how the Prophet changed them. And sometimes the Sahabi, they used to watch Hazrat Umar and he used to sit there and he'd be smiling, then he'd be laughing and sometimes you'd start to cry. And they will say to him, "Why we see you sometimes you sit there and you laugh and then you cry. What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? He says, I was just thinking back in the days 
in my days of Jahliya, when I used to worship these idols. And, and the story goes on to say that he goes, I, I, t I had my daughter and I took her out and I dug a hole and I put her in there. And my daughter clung onto my arm. Baba, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And he, I put my daughter there and I took stones to throw at her to kill her. Now, by the way, this hadith is weak. And the reason why is because they don't know if Hazrat Umar had that daughter or not. Allah we don't know. And it says the times when I then laugh is that he goes, I used to go out and with these idols. And sometimes I used to forget an idol when I used to travel. So I used to have dates and I used to make idols out of the dates, put it there, then I used to worship it. Then I used to look at it and get hungry, and I ate the whole thing. But the point is, is that when it came to these girls, there was no value for them. They were just an overhead and they were a burden. So the fact that Muhammad Sallam conceded this, he was absolutely shocked. And he commended all of them. But he said the person that would take it is Jafar bin Abu Talib. And the reason why? Because his wife is the maternal aunt and she is the closest thing to a mother. So there's a fiqh ruling regarding this as well, how the adoption will work if take on a child where the child has now become orphaned. If you remember Amr bin al-As, after the battle of Khandaq, when the Quraysh had no joy beating the Muslims, the Ghatafan ran, the Quraysh had gone back, the Banu Qaynuqa news came out that they had expired their agreement or some treachery had occurred because one of the Ghatafan tribe by the name of Abu Noim, who then joined with the Muslims, and then caused this confusion between the tribes. And so they won nothing. The story is that the rest of the Quraysh tribe were coming back to Makkah. And Amr bin al-As had his friends with him. So he stopped. And they said, are we going back to Makkah? And he stopped there. He said, look, I don't know if this is a good idea. They said, what? He said, look, for the second time in a major war, right? Or third time, third attempt, we tried to destroy Muhammad and his men. We can't. It's a matter of time now. It's clear that God favours this man. And it's only going to be a matter of time, he will come into Makkah and he will conquer Makkah and he will establish Islam here. And I don't want to be here to become a Muslim and under his rule. So my suggestion is, let's go to Abyssinia. And the Negus is my mate. So the king has a very good relationship with him because he was an ambassador for the Meccans. He would go there constantly every year. Twice a year he would go there with goods, gifts and so forth to keep the relationship going. He said, let's go there and we can stay there under his rule. That way then, you know, if anything happens to Muhammad afterwards, he loses, we can come back to Makkah. If it doesn't, then we stay here. So they make their journey and they go. So the story went on to say that when he arrived in the palace, at that time, the Prophet Muhammad had sent one of the Sahabi, the delegations, to get married to Abu Sufyan's daughter. Right? It ties in. So when... Amr bin al-As came to the palace, he saw this delegate that was sent by the Prophet walk out. And they said, that's so-and-so, Disney, he works with, the, he was with the Prophet. I got an idea, Amr bin al-As said, he goes, I'll go to the Negus, he's good relationship with me, I'll ask him, give me this man, this man is part of Muhammad's crew, he's causing a lot of fitna, we will, I'll kill him and take his head back to Makkah, so that then, you know, they realise that I've done something good in favour. Because at the moment, when the Quraysh come back, into Makkah, they'll say, where's Amr bin al-As? Oh, he's legged it, he's chickened off. I can keep face with them as well. So he walks into the palace and he says to the Negus, Negus is happy to see him, hugs him, and he goes, my friend, Amr, have you bought me presents? He goes, I brought you loads. I've got leather goods here. What do you want? All here for you. He takes that. And he says to the Negus, Negus, can I ask you something? Is this man that came in? He goes, yes, this man who came from Muhammad as a delegate. 
He said, this man, you know this man Muhammad has caused a lot of problems for us. Families have broken up. People have died over him. Hand this man over to him so I can kill him. When Negus heard this, immediately he smacked his own nose, right, hard. Amr ibn Aas says, I was shocked because I was so scared. He goes, he hit his nose so hard, I, th I thought he broke it. He says, how dare you? You expect me to hand over this delegate who works for the man where the angel Jibreel comes down to. At that moment, can you believe it? Amr ibn Al-As said, just from this person, the penny dropped. For me, the penny just dropped because I've got a relationship with this man and I never looked at it from that perspective. And the fact that he was so overwhelmed by Prophet Muhammad I realize now, you know what? You're right. He is the Prophet. You know, sometimes you could be the greatest da'i in the world. The Prophet Muhammad himself could not convert Amr bin al-As. And it took a man from another country, from another town, from another race, from another religion to open his heart. That's the point where Amr bin al-As that I realized he's right. He's absolutely right. Everything he replayed back in his mind, everything that happened over the course of the last 10, 15 years now, everything got replayed and he said it makes complete sense. So he said, I left, I didn't tell my friends, and I made my way back to Makkah. So what was happening in Makkah now? After this Umrah and the Prophet ﷺ had left, an incident that occurred, right, with Khalid bin Walid. So Khalid bin Walid, his brother, um, he, he has a brother by the name of Al-Walid who became a Muslim at the time of the Battle of Badr. So the Prophet Muhammad used to say to Al-Walid, where's your brother? Where's your brother Khalid? Your brother Khalid will be such an asset to us. And he said, Ya Rasul, make dua from Inshallah, he will join us soon. So he said, I went to go see Khalid. While Al-Walid said, while we were doing Umrah, I went to see my brother Khalid. And I said to him, you know, the Prophet Muhammad he asks about you all the time. And so this started to soften his heart a little bit. So Khalid bin Walid, he narrated his hadith. He said, when Allah wanted good for me, he always thrust Islam into my heart. So I've participated in all these battles against the Prophet Muhammad And every time I engaged, I sensed that I was being turned away and that the Prophet would be victorious. Now Khalid bin Walid was one of those characters, never lost a war, never lost a battle. But every time he started facing Muhammad he just couldn't get to him, right? No matter what he tried. The final straw was at Hudaybiyah. While I was prepared to charge, but even while he was praying, he was protected. I then thought to myself, where should I go? Now in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, when they were outside, remember Khalid bin Weebi said that he, they sent an army out to intercept him. There's a hadith that says that at the time when the Prophet was praying, Khalid bin Walid had an opportunity to attack him. This is when they started the Salat al-Khawf. So Salat al-Khawf is the Salat of Fair. I will watch, you do the first two rakats, I do the other two rakats in the Jama'ah. Yeah, so you almost split it. So this is what Khalid bin Walid was talking about. He says that when I saw him and I had the chance to attack him, whilst he was praying, I was prevented. Allah did not allow me to attack against him. Then he started to say, I then thought to myself, where should I go? Right? When he, now, when he is now coming, where should I go? My first thought was, I'll go to Abyssinia. But, these, but his followers, the Muslims, Jafar bin Abu Talib and all these people, they are there. Then I thought about going to Syria, going to Rome. But I would have to become a Christian and live as a stranger in a new land, and new culture where I know no one and nothing. So I continued to remain in a state of confusion. 
until this Umrah al-Qadha took place. The Prophet entered Makkah and he asked me through my brother Al-Walid, who then accepted Islam at the Battle of Badr. So my brother wrote to me and he said, In the name of Allah, the most compassionate, the most merciful, I have not seen anything stranger than you running away from Islam while you are as smart as you are. For how long will you oppose Islam? The Prophet Muhammad asked about you when he entered Makkah. He asked, where is Khalid? And I responded, Allah will bring him, Ya Rasul. Allah will bring him. And the Prophet said, it is not befitting for someone like Khalid to neglect Islam. If he were to use his talents with us against the Kuffar, it would be better for him and he would be honoured over others. So my dear brother, make up what you have already lost because many opportunities have already passed you by peace. So Khalib said that after reading this letter, Islam entered my heart. And so I was pleased in the bottom of my heart, the Prophet so highly recognised, so revered amongst his own people that he would ask about me and I was a no one. So I thought about it and I decided, right, I'm going to do it. But who should I take with me? Now Khalib and Walid, they're all friends, all of these young leaders, right? They're all good friends. So I approached Safwan bin Umayyah and said, can't you see the state that we're in? It's become clear that Muhammad has prevailed. If we follow him, his honour will be our honour and our honour will be intact. Safwan rejected this, became angry and he said, if I was the last person on earth, I will still not follow him. So Khalid bin Walid moved on. I thought to myself, this is the person whose brother and father were killed at Badr. I then went to Abu Jahl's son, Ikrama bin Abu Jahl, and I told him the same thing. I told him everything I told Safwan, and he responded in the same manner as Safwan did, in a very harsh manner. I then saw Uthman bin Talha, and I spoke to him, and he agreed. So me and Uthman decided to leave. As we were going, we ran into Amr bin al-As. So Amr bin al-As had left Abyssinia, made his way back to Makkah, and then make his way to Uz Medina. So he says, I ran into Amr bin al-As. And he said, where are you going? And he said, Khalid, we're good friends. I have realized that the Prophet Muhammad is a true messenger. And Khalid, when he was happy, he goes, that's exactly where I'm going. So all three of them traveled. When they got to Medina, they had brand new clothes. They took off their old because they wanted to look the best for the Prophet Muhammad As they walked in, you can imagine people like Umri Khattab, ready to, yeah, you come forward, I'm going to sort. They're on the defensive. Then they said, no, we've come to embrace Islam. The whole city erupted. And they grabbed all three of them, took him to the masjid to beat the Prophet Muhammad The Prophet was overwhelmed the fact that Khalid bin Walid became Muslim. But the most interesting one was the him and Amr bin al-As interaction. So Amr bin al-As came to the Prophet Now you've got to remember, Amr bin al-As made many attempts to kill the Prophet. So he put his hand out, right, to become Muslim. And the Prophet put his hand out to shake it. And Amr bin al-As pushed his hand back. And the Prophet looked at him and said, What's the matter, Amr? He said, You know I have done many things wrong. Not wronging myself or wronging my people or anything like that or I've stolen or done any of these bad things. I have wronged to the point, I tried to kill you. I tried to attack you. I have tried to encourage others to gain an army to fight you. You have to promise me one thing. If I accept Islam, 
all my sins will be forgiven. And the Prophet laughed at him. He said, Umar, do you not know that Allah will forgive all your sins like you will be a newborn baby in three circumstances? One, when you perform the hijrah, the immigration. Number two, when you perform the hajj. And number three, when you embrace Islam for the first time.